Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com changelog. This episode is brought to you by Linode, our cloud server of choice. Everything we do here at Changelog is hosted on Linode servers. Pick a plan, pick a distro, and pick a location, and in seconds, deploy your virtual server. Drool-worthy hardware, SSD cloud storage, 40 gigabit network, Intel E5 processors, simple, easy control panel, nine data centers, three regions, anywhere in the world they've got you covered. Head to linode.com slash changelog and get $20 in hosting credit. Hello and welcome to the Changelog, a podcast featuring the hackers, leaders, and innovators of open source. I'm Adam Stachowiak, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog. On today's show, we're talking to Evan Perdromo about his history in open source. He's someone who's been involved in open source since the early days. We talk about his open source travel guide, Wikitravel, the open source social platform called StatusNet, and the follow-up platform called Pump.io. We also talk about Fuzzy AI, a service that lets you create agents that add intelligence to your applications and a lot of fun stuff around intelligence and user experience. All right, let's get to the show. All right, should we start? Yeah, we should start. You mentioned open source since the 70s. I'd say let's... Bro, not since the 70s. Uh, sorry. Uh, he's 48, so... Yeah, that's since the 10 90s. years your senior, so call it 90s, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. That's my that's my earliest time. Yeah, my uh, I think my whoa, that's a that's a really good story actually. Are you guys recording? We are start right there. Yeah, tell oh. us about that. Yeah, so um, I was working for a very big company based out of Redmond, uh, and uh, we had uh, I, I was working for a big customer uh, in Silicon Valley. And uh, working on it, we had a number of tools that we were doing with them. Um, and we had one project that really was amenable to doing via a website. This was like 1995 or so. And I was like, oh, this web thing looks pretty interesting. I'm kind of into what's going on. And I'm like, what should, you know, how do I do this? And at the time, the only way that you built dynamic websites was with Perl. There was a uh, port of Perl to uh, our platform, Windows NT at the time. And uh, so I started you know, building websites for this uh, customer using uh, the NT port of Perl. And it was really difficult. And I spent uh, a lot of time documenting what I had learned um, and responding to people on email, responding to people on IRC, and, you know, these were all things that I had never done before. And I was getting more and more into it. And then I published a big FAQ. Uh, it was basically a how-to for using Perl on Windows NT. And, you know, I'll never forget that experience of publishing. You know, this is a relatively small open source participation. Um, mm. But publishing that and just having this flood of dozens of emails coming in saying, thank you. This is exactly what open source is about. Like, we're so glad you did this. This is, you know, saved my life. This has been so important to me. Keep doing this. And I was like, 
this is amazing <laughs> in, in, in my entire <laughs> like good. you know i don't I, i'd only been doing you know software for about five years and like no one has ever personally thanked me for something i did wow. i was like i just want to keep getting this experience again and again and again <laughs> for as long as i can so mm-hmm. that was it, it was a really you know i think for a lot of people who get involved in open source that feeling of gratitude that comes from people who use your your software gets kind of addictive it's really like you're like i'm making a difference for people with something that i didn't even know uh, would matter to them. What you year was this? And you said Windows NT, so this is like mid nineties. Five, yeah, it would be ninety five uh, or early nineteen ninety six. Yeah, yeah, it was a, a yeah, it was a a really good uh, it was a really good experience. I mean, the um, you know Pearl was actually shipping with Windows NT at that time, but it was totally undocumented, and it was really great for me to be like doing that part of it. Um, Great experience there. And I think that, you know, the other projects that I've launched and have had that great uh, feedback, like it is it is a high that like once you've had it, you just want to keep getting it again and again. Tell us about some of those. I know uh, Wiki Travel sounds like it was yeah. a, is a big success. Tell us about that story. <laughs> yeah, Wiki Travel, um, Wiki Travel started. I actually started that uh, website with my wife. Um, we were traveling around the world. Um, I had quit my job in the Bay Area, uh, taken the uh, taking the money I had made, and um, you know was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. So we were traveling around the world. We were doing all kinds of interesting travel, um, and we were using you know at the time what everybody used, which was great big guidebooks. You know those big like five hundred page guidebooks that would say. Mm-hmm. Name of publisher 2003, right? And uh, you know, we we used one to get to a hotel in Thailand on a uh, on an island called Koh Samet, and we had to take a ferry from the mainland to this island, and then a jeep to get to this hotel. No internet for this hotel, no phone, right? This is a this is a backpacker kind of place. And then the Jeep drops you off and you have like another half mile walk to the to the hotel. Um, we get to where this hotel is supposed to be that was in our guidebook. And if there had ever been a hotel there, it had been gone for at least five years, right? There was mm. just like a little bit of, of detritus around on the ground. So as we were doing the five mile walk back to the harbor town, um, we, were tell- we were asking each other like, what are we going to do about this, right? The, I think the thing that really surprised us is that we had just had an experience where our guidebook was catastrophically wrong for us. And, uh, you know, it wasn't that big a deal. We could recover for it. But the worst part being that, like, there were going to be hundreds of other people that would come make that same mistake, right? That listing was going to remain in that guidebook. Unless we reported it, it just was going to stay there forever until they came out with a new edition or they sent a writer out. And we were like, this is something that makes no sense. Like, why do we have a system where we're using guides that get out of date really fast? Uh, one of the things I learned later is that most, most travel guides are updated on a three to five year editorial cycle, right? They don't mm-hmm. actually get updated every year, even though it's got the name of the year up on the front. Um, they don't send a writer out 
more than once every three or five years. Um, I had been looking at Wikipedia. I was really interested in it. And, uh, you know, together with that experience, we realized that having a wiki edited travel guide where anyone could update the travel entries would mean that nobody would have that same kind of problem that we had just had. That if, uh, if there were changes in prices, if hotels or restaurants opened or closed, that kind of stuff would get updated immediately. And uh, so started Wiki Travel in 2003 and uh, had that first kind of um, exciting point of launching the site, getting the first group of users involved, a lot of people who were involved in Wikipedia, and then having a number of articles come out about the project. Oh, God. I mean, like our first articles were like on Advogado and Corrosion. Like there are two names I've not heard in a long time, but like they gave us and Slashdot and uh, they gave us like the boost that we needed to really like get that virtuous cycle going with that site. But, uh, you know, another one of those experiences where people are, you know, writing and emailing us and telling us, like, you saved our vacation. I got stuck at an airport and I needed to find something to do with my kids. And so we use Wiki Travel. And, uh, and so it's been a, a really successful project. Are you still that, involved in it today one. or is this since so, is this in your timeline only? Um, so here's the here's what happened with Wiki Travel is that we sold it to a company um, in 2006 and we stayed on and managed it for three years after that. After we left, uh, the company didn't do as good a job as they could have in community management um, and working with the admins. By that point, there were something like 40 admins on the English version, 24 five language versions, different language versions, English, French, German, Romanian, etc. Um, and eventually the group of admins said, you know, we're not getting the value out of this relationship that we expected. And they forked the project. And it's now a uh, Wikimedia project called Wikivoyage. Um, hmm. and, uh, and so the two still exist. Wiki travel is moving more to a read only version. Wiki voyage is where all the, all the big action is. Um, but, uh, I have been, I'm at this point, uh, I answer questions when people ask, um, I don't do a lot of speaking about it as much as I used to. Um, but, uh, I try it sounds to like you're still passionate helpful. about it though. I, I am. I think it's a fantastic project, right? Like we had when we launched the uh, Hungarian version of uh, Wiki Travel, um, the people who we, we needed to have a core of admins, and they they told me that um, you know a country of eight million people at the time, eight million native speakers of Hungarian, there were no travel guides written in Hungarian. The only Hungarian travel guides um, dated back to the Soviet era and were like for, you know, travel to Cuba, travel to Angola, right? Like they were only within the communist world. And, uh, you know, for people who are um, living, for people who are English speaking, it's one thing, we can get a lot of commercial options for travel guides. For people yeah. who speak, uh, you know, Brazilian Portuguese, uh, it's very hard to get a travel guide to Iceland, a travel guide to Goa, a travel guide to South Africa, right? They don't 
um, there are much more limited uh, options. So having a system like Wiki Travel really helps more people travel in a lot a lot of different ways. And uh, I think that's that's been exceptional. I'm very proud. And obviously of it. not uh, arrive at a hotel that's not there anymore. Right. <laughs> well, let's hope not. I mean, I think that I think the other thing that's been really interesting that's happened with Wiki Voyage and uh, Wiki Travel is that it's become the kind of default data set for a lot of the travel apps on um, on iPhone and Android. Right. So it because that's it's Creative Commons, yeah, because it's Creative Commons licensed. Um, they're able to use that and deliver it in different ways. There's also a very nice, you know, uh, MediaWiki, the software that runs Wikipedia and Wikivoyage, the whole uh, Wikimedia group, has a really great, actually, mobile experience. Um, and so you can go through a mobile editing process where you're standing outside a restaurant that's closed or you're at a hotel whose rates have changed and you can just make the change right there. And I think that that's been really cool too. It was something that we didn't really have, you know, 15 years ago when we started the uh, site, it was much more like, you know, you would go to an internet cafe and sit down, rent your uh, PC by the hour and, and try and, uh, do your editing there. And, mm. uh, the mobile aspect has made that uh, two-way process much, much easier. Seems like the just looking at it, um, I know it's quite different, surely, to, today than it was even when you your day-to-day involvement stopped. Yeah. But uh, the name, the website, you know, the software that runs it um, started in 2003, Wikipedia 2001. Like you said, you were inspired by it. Curious if yeah. there were efforts to like be part of Wikipedia. I know that there's slightly different goals with a travel guide versus an encyclopedia. But um, was there ever like you said there was some cross pollination with people that were editors? Was there any other yeah. involvement with Wikipedia proper? Well, um, obviously we used uh, we used MediaWiki, mm-hmm. and so I was a core committer on MediaWiki for uh, quite a long time. Um, I built a lot of the extension mechanisms that work in MediaWiki. So your ability to, you know, write extensions, uh, the whole hooks architecture for MediaWiki, um, because I needed it for Wiki Travel. Uh, Wiki MediaWiki was very monolithic for um, for running Wikipedia when I when I first started, and so that was one of the first things that that I really worked on. So there's that relationship. But, um, you know, I think that the, the big thing is that, you know, an encyclopedia is not a travel guide, right? Yeah. Um, things like the um, phone number of a restaurant don't necessarily belong inside of an encyclopedia, but they're crucial for a travel guide, right? right. So that's the, kind, that's the kind of thing that we um, tended to cover a lot of data that didn't necessarily belong inside an encyclopedia. And so, and a different kind of presentation too. We we tended to have abbreviated um, histories, a bit abbreviated information. You're not uh, looking for the full encyclopedic listing of the Eiffel Tower and and its full history and what kind of steel was used. Um, you're looking for when it opens and closes and whether it's open on Sundays after ten, right? Like so, that's mm-hmm. the kind of thing that people are looking for in a in a travel guide. Um, for a long time, we had this kind of, uh, you know, doesn't make sense for 
us to be part of the Wikimedia Foundation or should we be on our own? Okay. Um, I think there was also an expectation that like not every wiki in the world needed to be at uh, part of the Wikimedia Foundation. So like Jimmy Wales started a company called Wikia that does some amazing wikis. Um, uh, there is a fantastic um, site called WikiHow, which is how-to and instruction man manuals. And so we felt like we were part of an ecosystem there. Um, we had a good tie to uh, Wikimedia and Wikipedia, but we didn't think that we had to kind of merge in. So, mm. and uh, yeah, it, uh, it, I think eventually the, um, it, having Wiki Voyage be part of the Wikimedia Foundation has been a really good fit, but, uh, but it was a, definitely a long, long time to get there. Mm. So you gave us your formative experience. And I think mo most people who've caught the open source bug have had a similar experience. Uh, to what you have in, in some form or another. I even had it uh, even just writing on a blog, just like just blogging technical things that I thought weren't interesting to anybody. But, uh, you know, putting out very specific errors and then the fixes to them, it turns out that's of huge value to people in, who are also pasting those errors <laughs> into Google. And so you have like, you know, heaps of praise um, for saving somebody, you know, maybe a minute, maybe an hour, maybe a day of their life. And we've all probably also been on the receiving end of that. I know I have, where people yeah. have saved me countless hours. Um, your Wikipedia article says you're free and open source software and an open culture advocate. Um, did that all start when you had that that experience? And then perhaps you know the success of Wiki Travel. Where's that coming from? Well, I think you know part of that is that experience from the web, right? Like for me. Uh, having worked at Microsoft and then having had this kind of transformative experience of of open source, like I began a a really deep involvement in web technologies. And when you're talking about, I mean, even today, web technologies are 95, 98% open source anyways, right? Um, but, uh, you know, especially at that time, it was, you know, LAMP stack, um, you know, all you had to learn Linux, you had to learn shell, you were mm -hmm. using Emacs, like, or using VI. And, uh, and so like pursuing that technology required that you had to go into that culture. Um, it was also, you know, an, an exciting time. Like the, the, the word, uh, open source was like, just, just coined around the time that I was, I was starting out previously, it had mm -hmm. been free software. Um, and you know, the first O'Reilly conferences were starting and I spoke at one of the first Pearl conferences and, uh, like there's that, uh, it, it was a, it's a very heady experience. Um, I think that, uh, there, that has been really important, but also that feeling of like, what if we could use these same freedoms for other kinds of projects, right? So wiki travel is creative commons licensed. And uh, it, it's a by SA, right? So it's a uh, share-alike license. And uh, I had not actually uh, known a lot about Creative Commons before I started Wiki Travel, but because of our involvement with Wiki Travel, I got very involved with with Creative Commons. Um, I was a uh, Debian developer, and I helped with analyzing the Creative Commons licenses for inclusion in Debian. Um, and uh, kind of negotiating that process. 
um, which was really good for for both sides, I think. So I uh, I definitely think that there is a step by step process where you um, once you get started, you find that there are lots of tasks uh, all over the world for you for you to do. You know, there are always um, issues that need more uh, need more effort from more people. And uh, people who have experience with open source can really make a difference. One of the ways you've been applying that experience, it seems like over the years, is with regard to open slash federated open source social networks. Um, give us a little bit of history of your work with Identica, Pump.io, StatusNet, these things. Yeah, yeah. So partly because of my experience with Wikitravel, I was involved with a number of people who were interested in you know how free and open source software was going to uh, be affected with cloud computing right and this is like 2006 2007 so i was part of a group uh, the franklin street group that uh, did some uh, discussion and put out a statement the franklin street statement about um, free and open source software in a kind of cloud computing world and ways that people can be kind of preserving their freedom in that in that kind of world. At the same time, a lot of the social networks that we take for granted today were just starting to break through, right? So like 2007, Twitter had their launch at uh, South by Southwest mm-hmm. um, or their big public launch, right? Their big the the, uh, the classic epic launch at South, South by Southwest. <laughs> Facebook the, opened the up. Bernard. Of their, their hockey stick began to, to exactly, rise. Exactly, right? exactly. Everyone's been chasing that same hockey stick since, right? Like mm-hmm. everyone who goes to South by Southwest is like, yeah, it's going to be guaranteed. That's what's going to happen for us. <laughs> That's what happens uh, there, right? Yeah, exactly. Facebook in 2007 launched Platform and uh, and opened up for non-college uh, email addresses to really big uh, big steps where there for Facebook, um, and I I was really interested in in social networking. At the same time, we had some really interesting social uh, quote unquote open stack, although that name has been used for other things now. Of open ID, OAuth, um, personal contact, uh, a number of other uh, interesting projects that were making it possible to have open standards for web applications and especially web applications that had social aspects. So at the time I was so charged up about free and open source software and web-based systems that I was like, we need to have a uh, open source social network. And so that's when I started a project that eventually became known as uh, StatusNet. Um, it's now new social. Um, so it, it continues to uh, live and breathe. But at the time, it was, uh, it was actually called Laconica. Um, but StatusNet is the name a lot of people know it by. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest, uh, I launched a site that used a product called uh, Identica. And uh, that was really the, the first big step. So it was a microblogging site. Um, and for many years, it was very popular among uh, a number of people. Um, especially people who are involved with uh, with open standards, open source software, and uh, it remains active today. There's still an active community, but uh, a lot of that community has kind of kind of moved on. Um, it is a, I, I think that you know, as the period from you know 2007 to t- 2017 has shown, um, social software has become a crucial substrate in the internet experience, right? Something that yeah. a lot of us would dismiss as 
um, trivial, kind of unimportant, you know, find some friends, stalk your ex-girlfriend kind of thing. Now it is a, um, now it is an important part of business. And it's really the way that most of us stay in touch with our, uh, friends and family. And yet, um, it remains a system that is largely centralized around a few big sites, right? Facebook, Instagram, Snap, and uh, and Twitter, um, and so the um, and Google Plus, I guess, if you're a, a, a certain group of people. Mm-hmm. So I think that a um, yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <Basically>. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that it's a uh, it, it's definitely a um, an area that. Uh, continues to need focus from the open source community. Um, the big thing that's been kind of the the way that things have gone in waves. So I started StatusNet. I published a federation protocol that would let two StatusNet applications talk to each other. And uh, that was called OStatus. And then uh, Diaspora came along and they built their own federation protocol that lets you have two Diaspora systems to talk to each other. Tent.io came along. They have system. They have a protocol that lets uh, tent systems talk to each other. Um, so all of us were putting out this great f- free and open source software, very easy to use, very interesting stuff. Um, but we didn't make it talk to each other, and that's mm-hmm. been a that I think has been the big sticking point for, for federated software. I, I, I know that um, there have been at least ten really interesting projects over the last 10 years that have gotten a lot of media attention and look like they were going to break through. Um, but we keep having this kind of not invented here syndrome where we like, you know, make our own protocol, make our own systems and, and we don't make them interoperate. What uh, a project that I've been working on in the last two years um, has been for the W3C. Um, to take best practices for, from all of these different systems and make you know the one ring uh, to rule them all uh, social standard, right? And uh, and that has been really a uh, a successful project. So we've been working mm-hmm. over the last um, couple of years, first of all, taking the ex- activity streams standard um, and enabling it for JSON making it easier to use. We've also defined a standard API that uses activity streams called ActivityPub. And the combination of those two means that um, it's very easy to set up um, a federation system in a lot of different applications. So we're getting a lot of the applications like Diaspora, um, GNU Social, um, Mastodon is working on it. Um, et cetera, to start m- moving towards a single protocol for uh, for federation. And the hope is that we'll see a stronger ecosystem there. Um, I think that it's unlikely that, you know, Facebook will ever disappear from the earth. But, um, you know, with luck and work, we, we may see a good ecosystem of uh, multiple implementations that are able to interoperate with each other and uh, see some better behavior there. Coming up after the break, we talk about the open web and all the social networks, Evan's open source social platform called StatusNet, microblog and JSON feed from Manta Reese and the importance of being open and federated, and Evan's role in the W3C social web working group. All this and more after the break. 
This episode of The Changelog is brought to you by TopTal, a global network of top freelance software developers, designers, and finance experts. If you're looking for contract or freelance opportunities, apply to join TopTal to work with top clients like Airbnb, Artsy, Zendesk, and more. When you join TopTal, you'll be part of a global community of developers who have the freedom and flexibility to live where they want, travel, attend TopTal events all over the world, and more. And on the flip side, if you're looking to hire developers, designers, or finance experts, TopTal makes it super easy to find qualified talent to join your team. Head to TopTal.com, that's T-O-P-T-A-L.com, and tell them Adam from the Change Log sent you. All right, Evan, you were discussing other social networks down through the down through the ages. Uh, it seems like every couple of years there's a new round of, you know, potential, you know, Twitter replacements or you know, Facebook yeah. replacements. Like you mentioned, Diaspora. Uh, I remember I recall Identica. I don't know what's what's still going on with Identica. Um, yeah. Recently, we've had Mastodon. There's people talking about Scuttlebutt. Uh, Matt and Reese has a new thing called Microblog. There's yeah. There's different things yeah. that pop up here and there. Uh, App.net was a huge one back in the day. Um, yeah. App.net actually had, seemed like it had a pretty good chance for a while to, it to like stick around. It had the around. best chance of them all, yeah. It did. Um, but none of them stuck. And you had efforts, Pump.io, um, mm-hmm. things that didn't seem to stick on their own. And so what you mentioned before the break is the problem is each of these you know tries to be their own individual next Twitter or next Facebook or what have you. Um, but what we really need is to allow to have a common protocol or common thing that all of them share because it's very unlikely that something's going to rise up that offers similar things. It has to, I feel like it has to be a brand new thing to replace. And right now it's like, well, we don't want to wait for that brand new interaction, but we also want something that's open and federated. And Mm -hmm. so you have this social web working group. Um, yeah, yeah. Let's just kick back off there and, and tell us about what specifically the working group's working on and and what's come of it. Yeah, so the working group has like a mandate for three important tasks. The first is a social data syntax, right? So that is a way of dis, a way of being able to encode in JSON um, statements about people's social activities. Have they, you know, Evan liked uh, Adam's post. Um, and Jared posted this text, right? So being able to um, to describe in a JSON uh, blob, you know, what happened, when it happened, who liked it, that is kind of the first part. Um, the second part is a um, social API, so kind of a client-server API, so that uh, similar to like the Facebook API or the Twitter API, you're able to build clients that, not only do like basic posting and and listing, but also can do some of the really creative stuff that we've seen in like the Twitter ecosystem and to some extent in the face, Facebook ecosystem. The third part and the third major deliverable is a federation protocol, right? And when we talk about federation, that means a server to server protocol. So that if Adam's on one, one server and I'm on another server, I can follow his posts, I can respond to them, 
Um, I can send him a private message. He can see my images or videos that we can actually interact in a social way without having accounts on the same server. Um, the same way that we use email um, or that we use, um, you know, some other other systems, telephone systems, right? Like uh, mm -hmm. none of us ex expects each other to be on the same cellular telephone network. We expect them to just work together. Um, that's that's the way we expect uh, social systems to work. And uh, it's uh, we're looking to have that happen. We've done uh, a combination of those three things, the activity streams system, the uh, the activity pub, activity pub covers both the client to server API and the server to server protocol. Um, we have a number of other things that have come out, which has been really interesting. We've encoded some of the um, other really cool stuff that's happening on the web and social. So uh, Micropub is kind of a slimmed down version of uh, activity pub. We have a, um, a system called web mention, which is a very, it's like kind of a, a modernized pingback mechanism um, mm. that that does a very nice job of giving a federation experience. And uh, so we're basically like doing a lot to put these things out there. Um, but a lot of my work over the last couple of months has been bringing some of the some of the folks together who are working on Diaspora, on Mastodon, GNU Social, uh, my my replacements on Pump.io, I'm no longer the maintainer on Pump.io, um, and having them work together on these um, on these protocols. So, and uh, it's been a it's been a very successful process. We're really happy with the uptake in the community. I think the question, as you said, is like what gets it to uh, move forward. Okay. Um, I, I think probably you know one of the things that we find a lot in open source systems, right? There are a lot of open source systems that start out like this. Someone says, you know, I hate using uh, Adobe Illustrator. It's expensive and crappy and doesn't work. Like I'm going to write my own Adobe Illustrator and it's, and it's going to be much better. So we get this kind of reactive or negative uh, foundation for the project. And sometimes those can work for a little while. And sometimes people will actually use a project because of that negative foundation. Like I hate Illustrator. I love whatever replacement I would use, Inkscape or something. Um, and but it has to become useful on its own if it's ever going to succeed, right? And right. Uh, so, like, none of us think of Ruby as like, oh yeah, I hate C sharp. I use Ruby instead, right? Like. We think of Ruby as something that's on its own, that it, it isn't uh, an anti-brand. It isn't a negative space. And I but think Ruby's that's not more, a social network. Oh, yeah. Ruby is not a social network. <laughs> that's uh, yeah. true, too. That's good, uh, good observation, Jared. Well, yeah. yeah I mean, right like, that's, why, yeah. that's why they pay me the big bucks. But so can these open source social networks um, take on a life of their own that isn't just about like getting off Twitter or getting off Facebook or they all seem right. to stem from that though, right? Like it's something yeah. negative happened on a network and either harassment or racism or anything is happening yeah. on a network and it's not being policed well enough to mm -hmm. a certain group's feelings and or, or whatnot. And they're like, well, let's, let's move to somewhere else yeah. in hopes of having, you know, good things, better community, right? Yeah, but for yeah. for whatever reason, it never catches on because it takes critical mass, or yeah. then you kind of wish that in your case, like you're saying here, you wish that network interrupted with 
you know, let's just use Twitter for example, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And there's that, and there's that feeling that like grandma's on Facebook, right? Like eventually I'm going to have to go back and, and say, thanks for, thanks for the happy birthday, grandma. Right. Like there's that, like it pulls you back in because they're, they do have that critical mass of, of people. So I think that tools that integrate using the custom APIs of, uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, et cetera, those are ones that, that are more successful. I think also one, so you can keep your existing networks without kind of giving them up. I think also ones that stimulate kind of, uh, hackerly, uh, instincts are also like really powerful, right? The more that we have cool, um, you know, third-party clients, the more that we have cool hacks, games that integrate with a with a social mm-hmm. network, etc., the more likely we are going we're going to be to to use that kind of thing. Um, so that's the, and I think that it's really a you know you get a virtuous cycle where you have the platform and then third-party clients build on top of that. And because there are third-party clients, there are more people using it. The more people using it, the more third-party clients want to build for it. And you get this nice cycle. One great thing about having open standards is that, you know, if you're like, uh, there's no crueler fate than being a Twitter developer uh, over the last 10 years, right? Like there's been so many ups and downs and, you know, one week they're encouraging one thing for you to do. And the next week they're saying that that's forbidden and they're going to turn off your API key, right? Um, same thing with Facebook. They've been definitely like back and forth on what they want to encourage people to do and not encourage people to do. With uh, open source networks and open standards, it's like nobody can tell you what to do. If you want to you know, build a competitor for the default uh, Android client, like go ahead. No one's going to stop you, right? And that's uh, that I think can be really powerful. So like kind of getting outside of those big companies main business models and saying like, we are going to build our own system that doesn't depend on that. How does it sustain though? I mean, that's the one thing I wonder is, I mean, obviously Facebook is one thing and it makes a lot of money. So it's able to progress its network, you know, whereas with the the WC three, obviously you have members and different corporate interests there. How does, you know, how does the, the motivation remain? Like somebody has got to eventually, profit in some way, whether it's monetary or a better yeah. network or a better system. And yeah. that's the open web. So I'm like, how, where, where does that motivation slash funding slash sustainability come from with, with this particular effort? Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good question. Right. So like there is, there's definitely, you know, different sources of who's going to pay. Um, I think for like enterprise, um, a lot of enterprises have, their own social network that they run internally, right? So they'll have a Jive or a Yammer or, um, you know, or they'll use a messaging system like Slack or HipChat, right? And so having something that's internal that they can also connect to partners and and customers with is really powerful for them. Um, and, you know, something that they own, they know where the data is, they're not, you know, they control the user accounts is very attractive for those enterprises. So we had a number of companies that participate in the social web working group because they think social for business is an important aspect. And for them, having multiple vendors, having a choice in terms of the software that they use is really important. Um, I think that there are a lot of, you know, 
uh, people like us for whom like, you know, spinning up a digital ocean droplet and putting a, a Docker uh, image up is like really, you know, easy. And we're like, oh yeah, it's a few bucks a month. Like I don't mind doing that. But for the wider internet, you know, user community, if we could even say that, like my aunt is not going to want to do just, that. Yeah, I guess that, that's just people now, yeah, right? Like there's people. no such thing as the internet community. It's just like humanity. Right. Um, they, they <laughs> the don't, world. They, yeah, the world, they don't In pay for, they don't pay for the software, right? Like they don't like asking them to pay for their social networking is not going to work. Right. So it's going to be, um, I think that in a federated world, what happens is you probably have a mix of advertising-based systems that uh, you know that do connect into that federation the same way as the self-hosted ones do mm-hmm. or the enterprise ones do. But uh, it's I think it's interesting to think like what's the advantage there? I think the advantage for someone who would be starting a commercial social network in that kind of world is like. I can start a new network and there would be hundreds of thousands or millions of people already on the network because I'm being part of this federation. Right. Um, And so that is like that. That's a big aspect. The hard part is like, well, what is the special value that I provide to my customers and being a commercial provider is going to be a little bit tougher there. Um, There, there have been a few, like uh, we've, we've definitely seen some uh, advertising supported, uh, systems, but uh, it's it's definitely a, a little bit more of a slog. The system um, and I, the protocol ha- has to be independent, right? Like the ability yeah. to do so shouldn't uh, doesn't play to the same motivation for why you want to do it, right? So, uh, right. you know, all these different uh, components to it, the social web protocols being able to and the motivation to do so are two different things. Like we have yeah. to give the the web and the open web a standard for which to do so. Right. And that's, yeah. seems like what this effort is, is less on like, why would somebody want to do it, but more so how they should be able to do it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I think of like, um, email is also a good model here and it's definitely a model to it. it there are some like negative aspects to it too, but like, you know, we have people who use free email systems like Gmail um, that are advertising supported true, and they're happy with that system. A lot of enterprises who are like, you have to use the company email for company business. And everyone knows that that's, that's the way that works. Um, as well as, you know, people who are like, hey, I'm just going to spin up my own mail server and use my own domain, right? Like, and mm-hmm. we have a, um, I think that we have a good mix of that on the internet. Um, there are definitely like downsides to that too, right? Like it is really hard to run your own email server in 2017. Yeah. Like it is a, it is an uphill battle. Um, but, uh, but still possible, which I'm, which I'm glad about. Like, I, I'm glad that it's, it's still there. It's one of those things, it's one of those tasks that I do that I'm like, um, I just have to keep doing this. <laughs> I have to keep yeah. doing this because I want to believe that it's possible, right? And uh, yeah, and it's a, uh, it's definitely a, a, an interesting fight. Um, but uh, you know, so seeing that same kind of pattern in social world is possible too. And again, with email, we have a mix of uh, proprietary software, open source software, um, cloud-based software, web software. So um, I think that there's uh, the same kind of thing will happen with uh, with social software. 
I think email is the best success story to use because it's used globally by everybody. It's yeah. an open on open protocols, SMTP, pop and IMAP, and it's completely federated. I think a failure case, if you wanted to say what worked for email and then yeah. what didn't work. So IRC is the opposite, right? IRC yeah. is federated. IRC is very popular amongst people like us. Yep. And in many ways it's better, in many ways it's worse, but it never broke through, which is interesting because yeah. they were probably both started you know, in the good old days. Um, yeah. Email is was used by everybody. IRC never made it outside of hacker circles. And even amongst us, like, you know, most yeah. people of us are, we're, we're on Slack, you know, because they yeah. provide overall a better experience. And so what, I'm not necessarily asking you to answer this, Evan. I'm just kind of throwing this out as a, as a thought is like, what worked for email? Why did email get traction and IRC never did? Or even remain, not so much as traction, yeah. but, but remain. Well, IRC is still out there, but it's not. Yeah, but I, so like there are a couple things in there and, and obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Like yeah. I, I don't know, um, but it's, it, it's kind of easy to say, like looking back, but there are a couple of th things that I think are interesting there about IRC. One thing about SMTP is like, it's super simple, right? The, yeah. the protocol is very simple, but extensible, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, in, in a lot of ways, it's a little bit janky. Like if, if you start getting into some of the weird extensions, like it get really, really funky, but um, it has been this kind of layered thing that started with something simple and then we needed something else to put on top of it and so on and so on, right? Um, whereas IRC is just gigantic, like the protocol is really big to start off with and it's really complicated, right? And it maintains these uh, live connections and so there's a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff that you have to do that's, mm -hmm. really, um, that's really kind of tricky. So I think that's one thing is that, um, you know, you mentioned uh, POP, IMAP, and uh, SMTP, um, mm -hmm. as well as, like, you know, the uh, email message standard, MIME, uh, the right. way that we do uh, attachments, like, all of this all of this together is, like, one thing on top of the other. Like, you, if you want to build uh, email, it uh, you're going to be using a lot of different protocols, um, whereas IRC is very monolithic. And, uh, and very big. So that's one mm -hmm. thing. I think the other thing is that um, one of the things about that I love about Slack is how quickly and easily extensible it is, right? Like you can build a Slack bot. If you have like any web programming sp skills, you can build one in an afternoon, right? Like but using the hook system is uh, really fun and easy. And, uh, and you can get some really fun behavior out of it. Whereas building an IRC bot is like, it takes a long time. You have to have a live process that maintains these connections. And uh, it's definitely a lot more complicated. So that third-party developer experience where it's like, hey, I'd like to add a little, I, I'd like to augment this experience by doing something a little bit fun or a little bit interesting or experimental or tying it mm -hmm. to another system um, is something that's really easy with a Slack and hard with IRC, um, not impossible, but definitely not as fun, right? Yeah. Um, email is somewhere in the middle, right? Like, so a lot of us build applications that's just like fire off email 
Um, but doing things like mailbox management is, uh, is, is kind of a mess, right? Like that's, that, that's not as much fun. So it's kind of lies somewhere in the middle there. Um, so like, those are a couple of things, like, can you get that? Can you get something that's like fun for fun for hackers? Right. Like, right. Look at this cool, funny thing I built. Right. And like, and that's the kind of thing that just like, once you've got the hackers, then yeah. you've got their friends and and friends and family coming on because they love looking at that at, at that stuff. Like, how many of us use Twitter because of all the hilarious bots that are on there? Right. Like, that's a that's a big part <laughs> of a lot of people's yeah. Twitter experience. Right. And uh, that is largely because they built an API um, early on that was fun and easy to use, right? You, you mm-hmm. really don't know, need to know much about the Twitter API to, to be posting. And uh, I think that the more that um, you know, open source projects are easy and accessible to third-party developers, the more that we get um, you know, fun bots, fun add-ons, fun applications, fun games that run on the network. One other thing I'll add is a, even a more basic concern with regards to just going back to IRC versus email, why one took Mm -hmm. off, one didn't. Email uh, appealed to humans at a a level they already understood. So you already know how the mail system works. I'm talking conceptually now, not technically or anything like that. This is like mail for your computer. And that's something that like everyone was like, oh, okay, I get mail. Um, This is internet mail. Okay. I'm going to get mail on my computer. I'm just talking about like human buy-in to the network, not just how it works in the Federation. Cause no one's like, Oh, is it, you know, does it, the people who are creating cool things, like you said, are attracting other people to use it. Um, but the ones who are just deciding, should I get an email account? They're thinking, is this going to provide value? Is this something I understand and can use? Whereas IRC was very technically challenging. Like you said, very insider, and it, actually, when I was exposed to IRC as a young lad, I probably was like 16, 17, it was like scary, weird, like, you know, you, just the whole interaction with IRC was something foreign. that not, yeah. yeah, foreign. And it had a bit of a, even then, this is like, again, late 90s, um, to me at least, the way it was introduced to me, it had like this underground, scary, yeah. kind of like forbidden fruit thing that was, that to me was interesting, <laughs> but to most people they're like, ah, keep me away. And so yeah. you also have to not just like get the technical things right, but there has to be some sort of hook into the humanity and saying this is going to add value to your life. And by the way, it's something that you can totally manage and do. And I think a lot of the struggles with uh, us as we try to build open things, because we're so concerned with doing it right, which of yeah. course is paramount, yeah. um, is that we don't have the right sales pitch for the other people who it would be better for them if they were to buy into this system as opposed to using Facebook all the time. But right. we don't tell them why it would be better in a way that's actually palatable or real um, for them. So lots of struggle, some technical, some social. Yeah. And I, and I think that a lot of times, you know, a lot of times we see a gap uh, between like the user and the thing that they want to get done. And, you know, we think of that gap as the user's fault, right? Like if someone says like, oh, I, I don't understand how to like use IRC, right? And it's like, oh, okay, this is what you have to do. Look for an IRC client for your platform on the, on the web, right? Install it, then find the right network and then, 
you know, register right. a Nick and then do, do, do. Right. And it's like, and here are all these things that you have to do and, and, and here are all these steps. And they're like, I'm never going to do those things. <laughs> right. Versus, versus having say a web-based experience like a Slack where it's just like, I mm. go in, I punch in my email address, it sends me a link and boom, I'm in, in the community right. I want to be in. Right. And that's a, and we tend to in the open source software community think like you must be at least this tall to make it into this ride right <laughs> like you yeah, must exactly. be you must be this smart to use our software or you're not good enough for our software right like which is a really and, and then we say things like why doesn't anybody use our software and it's like well right. cuz you you said they're not smart enough you said they're not good <laughs> enough right they're yeah. going to nobody wants to be told that they're not good enough and nobody's going to not do a task because like you told them they're dumb. They're going to go find someone who says you're smart and they're going to go find someone who says, here's the easy way to do that. Right. And yeah. you know, like how, how many of us, like, I, I think like things that things that we do, like having, you know, cut and pasteable, uh, you know, curl outputs to bash, right. Curl, curl shell scripts down and then output them through bash and like, you know, do an installation like that is everybody knows it's the wrong thing to do and everybody has criticisms, but it's so easy, right? It's like one, <laughs> one copy and paste, right? And, uh, you know, finding those things where it's like, maybe we could close that gap a little bit. Maybe we could just make it a little bit easier for, for folks. And, uh, and eventually that spark happens, right? And it's the, uh, and I think that it's really up to us rather than up to the users to, to close that gap. Yeah. Well, speaking of not using software and making things easier to, before we transition and go to a break and transition to the next topic, I want to ask this about a tweet you had about Mastodon, which is one of the most recent yeah. efforts to, yeah. to do a, a federated social network. Now, you put out a tweet basically being bummed that they didn't use ActivityPub. <laughs> and you said at the end of the tweet, that's all you had to say, but I doubt that's the truth. So I'm the note of not using software. And I'm, I'm a liar. Well, I'm sure he has more to say, and I'm giving him a oh, chance to say it right here. So, like, you know, maybe not so much a response to that tweet in particular, but maybe to those out there who are not using, who are doing something similar to Mastodon or even themselves, uh, you know, to use the different protocols that, that yeah. you and the folks at W3C have been doing around the social working group. Like, give them the pitch of, like, why ActivityPub should have been used and yeah. maybe the first steps. So, so first of all, there are Mastodon developers who are working on implementing ActivityPub right now. So I'm very happy about that. The, uh, the author of the ActivityPub spec has been working really closely with Mastodon folks. So I should probably unpin that tweet at uh -oh. this point. <laughs> I, had, tweet. I, I kept having people who were like, what do you think about Mastodon? What do you think about Mastodon? And, you know, I think for me, so like Mastodon uh uses a protocol uh o status that like i was one of the main authors for right so like i it's not like it's a problem for me that they're using o status the thing is is like oh you know they're so they just started something new they started this new project and like we've been working on this great improvement over you know older standards and it's like i wish we had um i it, this is another example. As a standards developer, I wish I had closed that gap earlier, right? Like I wish that we had had something ready for them 
at the time that they were looking for a protocol suite, right? So I think that in a lot of ways, that is not a criticism of the Mastodon developers who are doing amazing work. I mean, I love Mastodon's beautiful system. Um, and they're doing a, a lot there. I think it's, I take it more as a criticism myself. Like I wish that um, we had had the product there ready for them, uh, for them to choose, right? Like, and I think that that's the, uh, that, that's my big disappointment. Um, that said, like, I'm excited that they're picking it up. GNU Social, uh, Diaspora, Pump.io, um, we're seeing some really good movement in the uh, activities pub space. I think that I've said also a lot of things about uh, Federated Social Web that uh, apply to Mastodon too, right? Like you yeah. can't you can't yeah. live forever being the anti-Twitter, right? Eventually, it has to be something that's valuable in in and of itself. Uh, supporting third-party developers, the honey, the attractant, but it can't exactly. be what keeps. Yeah, yeah, because people don't like they don't stay angry forever. <laughs> like they well, don't. They app. Don't, nets at first was like yeah. you know we're not this thing and that thing was right. twitter and that was what was supposed to attract and keep and it eventually you just posted to twitter and app.net and then it was right. like well why am i doing this but maybe you had longer conversations and there was there was a small group of people who had a good experience there but in the end they just didn't stay and yeah. twitter just attract more people the, the masses the mainstream so when more and more people are there you can't deny the network the network's yeah. presence. So I, I mean, I think that for people who are who are passionate about Mastodon, right? Like what they need to be doing is like, don't be the doomsayers. Like, don't be the Cassandras. Don't be bringing everybody down by saying like, you really shouldn't use Twitter. You really shouldn't use Facebook. Do like, you know, build a cool app that uses Mastodon, right? Build something really fun that's only on Mastodon. Like um, make a cool bot, make a cool account, make uh, something that's fun and interesting there because that's how you get a community that's excited about being uh, excited on its own, right? And that's what attracts people. Negativity only goes so far. Coming up, we talk about Fuzzy AI, a service that lets you create agents that add intelligence to your applications. We talk through ways to add simple, intelligent responses to your apps that have a huge impact on the user's experience. Evan also makes a huge claim by calling data the new oil. It's required for machine learning engines, yet it's a scarce resource and one that not everyone has. All this after the break. This episode of The Changelog is brought to you by GoCD, an open source continuous delivery server from our friends at ThoughtWorks. GoCD lets you model complex workflows, promote trusted artifacts, see how your workflow really works, deploy any version anytime, run and grok your tests, compare builds, take advantage of plugins, and so much more. Check out gocd.io slash changelog to learn more. And now back to the show. What's this next thing for you? You got to, where you're at now is is in AI. Uh, mm-hmm. We've kind of shared uh, Evan's history, so to speak. Your history through <laughs> the social networks, creating standards, and 
uh, we're at a place now where AI is taking far more presence in things. You got machine learning, you got deep learning, you got all these yeah. different sects of basically artificial intelligence, and you've got a new endeavor that is spawning from this. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So um, my new company is called Fuzzy AI, and it is an AI uh, API that makes it easy for developers to get started with um, adding intelligence to their software. Um, uh, you mentioned you know, a number of different uh, systems for doing AI. So machine learning, deep learning um, are really powerful algorithms you know, based on neural networks that, uh, that have had some really amazing uh, results over the last few years. Like we've seen a lot of really interesting stuff happening. Um, there are downsides to those systems too, right? Like to get a deep learning process going there, you really need two things. One, you need a lot of data, like a lot of data, maybe hundreds of thousands or millions of rows of data in order to get really good intelligence out of a deep learning system. The other thing is that, uh, deep learning systems can be very, uh, sensitive to minor changes in parameters. If you like modify how your uh, how your networks are laid out, what kind of layers you have, etc., what kind of inputs you're putting in, you can get very different outputs, right? You can get very different intelligence, and it takes a skilled hand to get a machine learning or deep learning process that can be used for production software development, right? And so that is a um, that is a very, so that combination of needing a lot of data and needing very skilled data scientists in order to get machine learning to work for you is a real non-starter for a lot of companies, right? And it means that when you're trying to do, um, I like to call it casual intelligence, um, so, you know, this isn't your bet the company artificial intelligence. This isn't putting mm. like, you know, this isn't putting a brain under the hood of the car. This is like, hey, maybe we could, you know, make our menu organization a little bit more adaptive for our end users. Maybe the emails that we send out could be a little bit more sensitive to their particular um, context, right? All those like little experiences that we have with software could we make them a little bit more intelligent? And uh, that's the kind of problem that we're trying to do with fuzzy AI. Um, you, those are hard things to do with like with big data stores and lots of data scientists. Nobody's got the those kind of um, assets to apply to improving uh, web experiences. But we can do that with other algorithms. And so with uh, fuzzy AI, we use um, a hybrid logic learning system so that we'll start off with rules, you know, explicitly stated rules in a programming language that are then used as the initial decision-making process. And then based on feedback from production use, we will actually improve their behavior uh, with a learning process. So, um, you know, so let me let me think of an example really quickly. Let's say that we were trying to do a system that sends an email to new web users um, after a few days, just saying like, "How is it going? What's working? Is this working for you?" And we want to know how many days out to send it. Right? Do we send it one day? Do we send it nine days? Um, 
we could uh, build out a fuzzy AI agent, we call it an agent, um, that makes that decision. When should we send an email out? Um, maybe they are a user who came from the Stack Overflow podcast, and we know that those tend to be more uh, busy people who have uh, a lot of work that they're doing. So maybe we'll give them a little bit more time. Uh, maybe it's someone who's coming directly from Google. We know they have a short attention span, so we give them less time. We can use rules like that almost as uh, in the same language as I've just given and use that to make the first decisions. And then based on whether people actually respond to the email, we can then say, oh, that worked. Um, this person responded to the email, so that was a good good number of days to wait, or, oh, that didn't work, they never responded, so that was a bad number of days to wait. And we can feed that back into the algorithm, and it'll actually learn um, what input data actually maps well to the output data. And uh, the reason that I like it is that I often want to put intelligence into my software. And, uh, you know, I was, I was getting really frustrated with these kind of moonshot machine learning processes, I was like, we're not going to dedicate six months of, you know, training and hiring and getting a data scientist on board just to decide when to send the emails out. Hmm. But this is something that can actually optimize our business and making those small optimizing changes are really important for, for any kind of online, online business. And they can have big, uh, you know, big payouts too, you know. Yeah, exactly. Make exactly. the user happy that quickly for in using this as an example, that, that email as an example. I mean, you can really have a huge impact very quickly on a brand new user or, you know, whatever the case might be. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's really like the difference between frustrating a user and delighting a user is having a little bit more intelligence. Like yeah. how many times ha yeah. have you been using an app and you're like, Look, I already told you five times I don't want to. I don't want to do this. Like, quit popping this up to me, right? Like, or I, uh, you know, I want to get back exactly to the page I was at before. Like, take me back to that. Like, every time something acts intelligent and recognizes who we are, recognizes what we want, um, and tries to do things for us, um, those are the apps that we stick with, right? And the apps that are very rigid and don't adapt to us. Those are the ones we get frustrated with and eventually stop using, right? That's the, uh, you know, no one likes to feel like their, their software is framing them in. So the idea, again, with Fuzzy AI is like, can we build, can we make it easy to build artificial intelligence into your applications uh, without having to devote a huge amount of data and a huge amount of time and money into like making things intelligent. So well, you use the um, email as an example. Are there other examples that are like perfect fits? Cause like obviously every intelligent uh, response or every intelligence you require <laughs> in, in software isn't perfect for fuzzy AI. So like, yeah, aside yeah. from the, the example here, what other good examples can you give that are just like not dead perfect for fuzzy AI? So I tell, you know, what I tell developers is every time you have a constant declaration or if you have an if statement, that's a good time to be calling fuzzy AI instead. So, um, you know, I think I'm, I'm, I'm only joking, but, uh, you know, I'm trying to get some other code <laughs> I have laying around like, Hmm, that's, that, that is a lot of things, but you know, we do <laughs> like, like I, it, that constant declaration is such a great example though, because like how many times have like you sat there and been like, wow, I, I wonder how long we should wait for that email. Let's say seven days, right? Like, pfft, 
put it in there and then those things stick around in your code forever right and it's like well you know that's just based on my guess i made on a tuesday before the software had to ship right like it's not it doesn't have anything to do with the reality of the world um and uh so you know we use we have companies that use fuzzy ai for all kinds of different things um we have a company that uses fuzzy ai for matching up uh clients with uh attorneys so people who are looking for legal services they're able to find attorneys that will uh, perform those services right for the right around amount of money who are nearby that kind of thing adapting directly to them we have uh customers who use it for um, analyzing your social networks who's are who's important to you really in your social network who's less important to you who are you connected to that's that's uh, meaningful and uh, if we wanted to you know uh, bring together the most meaningful people in your social network who would they be uh, so those are those are a couple of things we also use them for things like when do you show a pop-up um, if you show a pop-up, like let's say you have an e-commerce site and you want to pop up when someone's checking out, like, hey, would you like to add something to your shopping cart? Well, that can be really annoying for people, right? Like people, people might not like it. Or you could pop up exactly what they need and want and you've just added like $10 or $100 to your sale, right? So knowing when to do that the right way is really important. Um, so those are a couple of things. I think another thing that, that's been really interesting for us is the growth of uh, chatbots. Um, and uh, there are a few really great chatbot systems out there, um, uh, APIs for chatbots, as well as uh, as well as you know, different plugins for, for chatbots. Um, a lot of chatbot systems are very static, right? Like they'll have a uh, pizza ordering uh, bot that no matter how many times it offers me anchovies, I say no, and it still keeps offering me anchovies, right? Like it should learn eventually that I really like pineapple. And it should learn, I don't like pineapple, by the way, I way prefer anchovies. I probably should switch that around. Um, but it should know that like, you know, people over time um, don't like anchovies. They prefer the pineapple. We should really offer the pepperoni rather than the sausage because that's what people want. Um, and so taking like the initial assumptions of your software and exposing them to a testing environment you know, in a lot of the ways that we do with like A-B testing, um, exposing them to a testing environment and letting them actually um, improve over time is a lot of what fuzzy AI is about. Hey, what you mentioned there about the pop-up, because yeah. I'm I'm, I, I wear a marketer hat sometimes, <laughs> right? And there are times when I want to share a message with people who may visit changelog.com. You know, oh, this yeah. may be in the future, we do different things, but you know, there are times when I think, okay, to this type of user, I'd show a pop-up because they can be okay with it. And there's yeah. other users you just wouldn't want to. And so it it sounds like this is a perfect kind of tool for user experience designers, marketers, people who want to make wiser choices on things that they want to do but not do for every single user type. And yeah. so it, extending from that, like, is the is the UI for training it? Is it easy to use? How, how does that work? Yeah, so we have a develop a developer environment. I'm I I think that for me, like the user experience had to be really good um, because we were looking for something. I you know if you use like some of the really great developer um, APIs like 
uh, SendGrid or um, Parse, you know, some really nice uh, APIs. They make it, they have great UIs that are really easy to get started with. Um, and we wanted to have that too. So um, we really lucked out. Um, I, I have a, a good friend. His name is Kevin Fox. He was the user experience designer for Gmail 1.0. Uh, he also designed Google Calendar, the first version. He was at Facebook. He did. Uh, now I'm thinking that you probably should have interviewed him instead of me. But while you're talking about your team, real quick, uh, we also tell yeah. you James Walker is a longtime community member and a friend of ours. So oh, yeah. uh, that's another person on your team. In fact, I didn't realize Fuzzy AI on the about page. You got five folks. So just getting started, yeah. small team. I remember asking James, do you know Evan uh, Prodromo? Because we're going to interview him. He's like, yeah, I know Evan. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. of course. He's, you know, he's, uh, so, uh, hi, yeah. James. Yeah, so, um, you know, getting James on was was just fantastic. James is one of the most versatile developers I, I've worked with. Like, very smart, very quick, uh, very quick at, like, uh, learning new things, Um really thorough like i've really he's he's someone we worked together um on uh, status net too and uh, so when i started uh, fuzzy ai i was like i know one person i need to kind of lead the software development effort so he's been uh he's been with us for um a year and a half now and uh, he's just one of my favorite people to work with um i hope you cut all that out because it's going to blow his head up. Um, <laughs> no, we're leaving. It <laughs> but he's done it. He's done a great job with the way our, our system works too. Um, Kevin built our uh, developer environment and our development environment is very straightforward. It's very easy to use. It starts off with a rules-based system. So you can kind of put together your inputs and your outputs and you really write out your rules in this very natural way um, that is the kind of first step to the to the process and then the integration um we've got you know good drivers for most web languages um node.js ruby python php um that make it easy to you know kind of call us from your from your system and it's a restful api that anyone can call remotely so it's a uh, it, it's it's a nice kind of system to do I, it was funny you were talking about the pop-ups one of the ones that people have been really um interested in is that like you know rate us in the app store pop-up yeah. which is which can either be like a great growth hack for an app or it can kill it right oh, like don't show I'm, that to me man don't show it to me <laughs> see exactly you wouldn't want to show it to, to the jareds i'm the guy right. that you don't want to ever pop up anything on me i'm just gonna get mad right and yeah. there's some people who are like thank you for sharing that you have an email list or <laughs> i can extend my experience that's what i mean like there's there's I the know. flip side that you know it takes human touch to figure it out but if you can train a fuzzy kind of thing in this case, right? Do the fuzzification, yeah. as you mentioned in your, in your terminology, if you yeah. can be the human training this thing to do it, these little micro interactions that have big implications to user experience and potentially even company growth, like that's a, yeah. a huge gap being missed. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's like, you know, I think it's a, it's an exciting part of, you know, it's not the entire AI ecosystem, right? It's yeah. not everything that's happening in AI, but like any, software ecosystem like it's going to be i think that there's going to be a lot of different players like yeah. there's going to be a lot of different things going on there and um for every like um you know exciting uh alpha go right like that is that is pretty amazing 
like it's pretty amazing that the that those systems work. Um, I think that we all have to understand that there are going to be lots of sharp edges that we will buff off using AI, right? And it's going to make using software a lot better like we're all going to enjoy it a lot more it's going to be something that we're going to actually like be looking forward to and uh you know we've done a lot of work on this over the last you know 10 or 20 years to the point that people are are almost in this addictive behavior with their um with their with their software but i think that there's going to be a lot of things that we can do to make it more fulfilling and enjoyable and uh, and fun to be using software and and with lots of little agents that kind of mm. uh, help you along the path. Well, considering the the conversation we've had, like we kind of broke one of our rules, which was talking about uh, a commercial operation, so to speak. You know, oh, with yeah. potentially no open source aside from SDKs. So I'm kind of curious, given the the conversation we've had about your experience and participation in open source and all the things you've done. Fuzzy AI is a company. It's a for-profit. Um, yep. I'm curious how this plays back into impacting open source. Yeah, that's a really good question. And uh, I think that that's um, definitely something that's been uh, on my mind as we've like been working on Fuzzy AI. Because we do have, you know, a lot of our stack is is open source. So we publish a lot of what we do uh, either out through GitHub or through NPM. Um, but you know, there are some parts that aren't like our core engine is not. And, uh, you know, that's something that's really interesting to me. Um, we had an experience when we were doing status net where there was a really good alignment between what we needed the company to do and what we wanted the software to do. Right. So if we had someone go and install status net on their own servers, um, and we helped to make that easier. It was it was helping the company. Um, I think that if we were to take our engine out and have people integrated into their own stuff, like we would probably need to support that. And the question then becomes like, you know, what would that what would supporting like that look like, right? And whether we would be able to do it. And I also think that like in a connected world. Um, does it matter for them, right? Like, does our kind of, does the kind of customer that we're that we're using, are they going to benefit from taking our stuff and installing it themselves? Or is there some value for them in just calling our stuff? Um, it is like, it's definitely not something that I uh, look at lightly. For me, what's important is that we have an increased democratization of AI. And I think that's something that's going to happen over the next few years. Um, and I think that tools like fuzzy AI can be really helpful in that. Um, but we have to have more people doing more work with AI. If it remains something that's only done by a uh, very few companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, um, you know, the list gets really short after that. Um, <laughs> And uh, that, you know, you have to have this huge, these huge resources to even get started, like huge data sets, very expensive data scientists in order to get started. Like that's going to lead to a very interesting situation down the road. Right. Um, so I think that having a system that makes it easier for more people to um, participate in AI today is the most important thing to me and my team um and you know 
what how that happens is um you know it's kind of it's kind of up to us i think for right now having a public api is the way that we think that we can do that the best um you know never say never there's all kinds of things that we think that we think can happen in the future but for us right now like that public api is the best way that we can think of to get that democratic uh experience of ai happening when you say public ai what do you mean by that oh sorry public api api just that it's a remote api that's visible publicly yeah yeah you mentioned you know the big players and the what you called earlier was the moonshot you know ai methodology like deep learning machine learning these things that Admittedly, it requires, like you said, like an operations team at this point, yeah. historical data, lots of effort. Um, you know, the big trend investment. in tech. Yeah, big investment. The trend in technology is that over time, those things become more and more accessible to more and more people or more developers or companies. We see that happening a little bit with TensorFlow. I mean, we did a show, you know, maybe a year ago now, Adam with Eli Bixby about TensorFlow, and back then we had him walk us through like, what's it take <sighs> to get this into my application. And that was, the majo- that was the majority of the show. Training, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, having the data, a lot of right, yeah, a lot of steps. But even since then, they've made they've made some moves where, you know, there's uh, certain other models are available as a service or uh, yep. publicly available things. And so, what I think, I, I think you're fitting into a great little niche here in between the moonshot and nothing. And I see huge right. value there. And my yeah. question is, like, long term, are you afraid of getting squeezed out? As those, you know, those don't become moonshots anymore, but the more general purpose machine learning things become more uh, available and accessible to people to where your offering is not as good as what's also pretty cheap or easy? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I think that for me, um, it's uh, that machine learning experience, which I, I think that they're making leaps and bounds in, in the availability, right? Like it's getting yeah. a lot easier. Um, but uh, the like the thing for me, like the big thing, I, I, one of my f- friends, Alistair Kroll, says like data is the new oil, right? Like it is the thing that you uh, have to put into your machine learning system to make it go, and uh, it's a resource that uh, not everybody has. And being able to instead work with um, knowledge that exists within your company or uh, best practices from your industry, um, or just insights that you have, you know, personally, and being able to encode that into an AI system, I think that that's going to be a very competitive part of the AI ecosystem, no matter what happens, right? So mm-hmm. uh, we have customers that use like Amazon's ML, or they use TensorFlow on Google system, um, as well as fuzzy AI, right? Because they serve different purposes. One uh-huh. is a very data hungry system. One is one that really depends on knowledge that comes from your industry, right? And that's that's the two things. Um, sure. But uh, yeah, I mean, like, you know, you talk about like some of those moonshots, like for me, like you see these like self-driving cars that are going around and, uh, and they're great. And I'm really looking forward to the time that we have that. But like right now, you need like two engineers sitting up front, you know, who are like tuning the network um, just to make it go, right? Like that's the that's the self-driving car of 2017. And uh, for me, there's like, 
I would really like it if my windshield wipers turned on and off based on whether it's raining or not, right? Like I don't need, I, I, I don't want to have to switch from like fast to slow on my windshield wipers every time it like starts squeaking. Um, I would like that to be automated, right? Oh, wow. Um, I didn't so even putting... think about that. You just, <laughs> you just totally ruined it for me now. Every oh, time I'm sorry I, about that. I'm going to think to myself, why am I adjusting this thing again? Oh yeah, but those little bits of like little bits of automation, little bits of intelligence that we can do, um, is is something that would really like that changes an experience for us, and uh, and so I think that for those of us who create software, like thinking about how can we make those little experiences better through um, intelligence and like. And that's where we think fuzzy AI fits in. And I don't think we're the only one that's going to be in there. I think there's going to be a lot of different options in there. We just want to be one of the things, one of the tools that people have to do that, right? Like there's got to be a spectrum um, and, you know, different, uh, different times, just like we use different programming languages, just like we use different protocols for different uses. Um, we can use different AI systems for different kinds of problems. Mm. Adam, quick uh, future prediction for you before we close here. My daughter, my oldest daughter is nine. When she turns 16, is she going to have to learn how to drive or not? What do you think? Oh, man. Uh, you're asking me to predict. Uh, yeah. So that's, she's uh, nine. Seven, that's seven years. Seven, seven years. years. Optional I would say, driver's yeah, license? I would say it's, it's an elective at that point. Seven years. Yeah. How do you feel, Evan? You think that's about right? On the moonshot, think, moonshot self-driving cars. I think that that is a. I think that that is a really close one. I think that if she, uh, I think that the, by that point it's going to be a personal choice, right? So if you're someone who loves cars, you're going to be like, yeah, I totally want to drive, right? Like that's going to be something I, I'd like to do. Um, but I think by that point you're going to be able to say like, I don't need to. I can let I I, I can let the car drive. Yeah. I hope you're right. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't ever want her to have to drive a car. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's, yeah. been, uh, it's been a blast uh, kind of diving back into your history and, and pontificating about the future of AI and then what you're doing here on the on the micro sides of it. You know, I think these small wins, there's a great saying that says, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Right. And how do you create a good user experience? One small win at a time. So I think that this conversation certainly enlightened me. And uh, thanks for coming on, man. Well, thank you guys so much. I, I, I think I told you before we started, I'm a big fan of the show. So I, it's, a, uh, it's definitely a dream come true to have been on. Oh, that's awesome. It's certainly been fun having you on the show, man. So thank you. All right, that's it for this week's episode of The Change Law. We love talking to people like Evan who make the community awesome, make it thrive. If you enjoyed the show, Share with a friend, rate us on iTunes, help us spread the word about the show. Thanks to our sponsors, Linode, TopTal, and GoCD. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner, head to fastly.com to learn more. We host everything we do on Linode servers. Head to linode.com slash changelog. Check them out. Support the show. This show is hosted by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and Jared Santo. It's edited by Jonathan Youngblood. And the awesome music you've been hearing is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find more episodes just like this at changelaw.com or by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.